Hey guys, how's your week going? Mine's all right. I am really excited because I had a garden planted and I've really been investing in self-care. So we like made a gazebo and we like hung this hammock and then I decided to plant a whole bunch of pollinators with like some echinacea and some lavender and some rosemary, some things that I could literally use for my doula business. Anyway, it's just been a really special time where I've been trying to focus as much as I can on creating spaces within my life and even in my surroundings at home that feel safe and comfortable. And so I hope that as you are journeying on in your pregnancy, your postpartum period, your fertility journey, maybe stop today and think about something that you could do where you take something ordinary and make it special or make it spa-like. And I'm going to give you another example. So when my clients are postpartum, I often tell them when they like, They need to take a shower at some point. Maybe it only happens once a week, but you know, you still get a shower. Turn off all the lights in the bathroom and like light four candles. Bring your little robot or your Alexa in there. Play some spa music and turn something ordinary like a shower into a spa-like experience. I even like using their like little um, tablets that you put in the shower and they evaporate. So I have lavender ones and then I have peppermint eucalyptus ones. And I only use the peppermint eucalyptus ones when like someone's sick, you know, but the lavender ones, like it just makes me feel like I'm at the Grove Park Inn Spa. So that's how my week is going. I'm enjoying my garden and my gazebo and just resting and taking showers with all the lights off and the candles burning. And so in the midst of all of this, it's been a busy season for work and I've done a lot of batch recording. So I did record this episode in May of 2023, but today's episode is with Alexis Sullivan and she is a labor and delivery nurse and a nurse practitioner. She was a labor and delivery nurse, now only practices as a nurse practitioner. And she walks me through three very different, quite incredible birth stories. And also at the very end, we talk about her miscarriage and there was some uniqueness to the post DNC. And so I wanted to share that with you guys for education. I think that was really important. So let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hides. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, 
you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. So like, let's say you're pregnant. That's why you're listening to the Birth Story Podcast and you're preparing for a hospital birth that's upcoming. And of course, this podcast gives you tons of free information, right? But like, do you really understand the stages of labor? How to know when you're in labor? What if you have to have an induction? What about a cesarean section? What about all of the decisions that you have to make once you get to the hospital? So you get there and then they put you in triage Birth Story Academy walks you through all the things that happen, like that rapid fire with like monitoring and blood work and questions and IV ports and do you want an epidural? I don't know. Do you? In Birth Story Academy, we literally break down all of those decisions, pros, cons, risks, benefits, intuition, and like we get into it. We make birth plans. We do birth visions. We listen to birth affirmations and parenting affirmations. And like at the end of it, like you know exactly what's going to happen when you go into labor and when you get to the hospital. What's going to happen after you give birth? Newborn care preferences, how to take care of your baby. I guess what I'm getting at is if you're not in Birth Story Academy, what's your plan? I want you to come join me in Birth Story Academy and let me walk you through all of the decisions that you have to make if you're having a hospital birth and how to have body autonomy, and how to have informed consent and informed refusal. I'm going to teach you and your partner, if you have one, everything that you need to know about birthing in a hospital so that you can walk in that door with some swagger, with some confidence, wash that anxiety away because you learned everything you needed to learn in Birth Story Academy, and you are ready to crush that birth. Okay, let's do it. And let's get to this episode. Hey, Alexis, welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. Hi, Heidi. Uh, Glad to be here. I am so glad that you are here too. It's really nice to always have a perspective of someone who's in the medical field. So Alexis is a nurse practitioner and you guys, she did work in labor and delivery too. So I may ask you some medical things that I don't typically cover on the podcast. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Yeah. Hopefully I can answer them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Alexis, I know that you are brand new mom again. So can you tell everybody about your kids and their ages as we're recording? Yes. So um, I am um, married to my husband, Eric. I'm 29 and we have three boys. I have a five-year-old named Leo, a soon-to-be three-year-old named Bowen, and our newest is five weeks old at the time of the recording, and his name is Gunner. I love your names. You are, that's a really good, that's good naming right there. Yeah, we tried to pick strong names, you know, if they're being announced on the sports field or something. (laughs) Yes. That's that's how my husband goes through names, so. Um, That's how I ended up with one named Maximus Danger. Yes. Short for Max Danger. I mean, you know, can't really forget their name. And then Jagger is my youngest. So I think I tried really hard too with those strong names. One of my favorite midwives here, Sadie, her son is Gunner. 
I love it. Yeah. So what a good name. All right. Well, we're going to dig into these three birth stories. Trigger warning, you guys. In between, Alexis had a miscarriage. And there were some unique things about her miscarriage that I think we could all learn from today. So we're going to dig into that a little bit before we move to the third birth story. So let's start with your very first birth story with five-year-old Leo And just, you know, you would have been around 24 years old or 23 when you found out that you were pregnant. So was it a planned pregnancy? Did it surprise you? Was it fertility? Like, what was that journey like? Um, So my husband and I had been married in um, 2015. We got married and I had been telling him from the get go, like, whenever you're ready, I'll be ready for kids. And uh, I finally you know, kept pushing the issue a little bit. And in 2017, we decided to try. And I um, kind of said, you know, hey, trying will be fun. It took my mom a while to get pregnant. So, you know, it could take me a while too. So that's, um, he thought it was going to be, you know, at least some months of trying, but we were very blessed and got pregnant on the first, first try with him. So in April of 2017, we found out we were pregnant. Wow. So your mom had a long fertility journey and then you got pregnant right away? Yes. Yeah. That was probably pretty surprising, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The doula clients that I work with, I promise you that they're very similar reactions to processing pregnancy when we get pregnant right away. And then when we have really long fertility journeys, like they can be just, just, put you off, like where you're like, what's happening here, you know? Yeah, we have a really strong um, history of endometriosis in the family. And even like my cousins and other other women in my family, it took them a while to get pregnant. So I just assumed that was going to be my story as well. But we were we were very blessed with the first try there. Is that a diagnosis that you have, Alexis? I do not have that diagnosis. No. Okay. All right. Well, that could be a key differentiator there. All right. So how did you know that you were in labor with Leo? So when it's your, at the time, were you a labor and delivery nurse also? I was. So I began working as a labor and delivery nurse, oh, I think in 2016, uh, September, October, if I remember correctly. And, um, you know, I picked my doctor who I wanted to be my doctor based on who all the other people saw. And then this, this doctor, he's just wonderful. He had been a physician for a while and had great bedside manner. He'd come up, he'd give you hugs and kiss you on the forehead during your appointments and just, just the best doctor to be with. And so, um, when I got toward the end of the pregnancy, you know, he offered, do you want to be induced? Do you want to go into labor. And I honestly kind of wanted to pick who I wanted to be my nurse while I was laboring. Uh, Cause when you work there, you know who you do and don't want to be your nurses. Yeah. And um, so I elected to be induced because I had a feeling that he was going to be a big baby. And while I know that that's not, you know, an issue or a reason to be induced, um, I was told when I was checked at like 36 through 39 weeks, Oh, you're at zero station already. He's right there. He's really low. And I kept, you know, pointing to my stomach and saying, then why is he all the way up here, you know, in my ribs? (laughs) So uh, I, it was an elective induction. Okay. An elective induction at what gestation? 39 weeks and six days. So just one day before my due date. 39 and six. Okay. That's something really important for the audience to hear. When someone says, we're going to schedule you at a 39 week induction, that could be 39 and zero. 39 and one, 
39, all the way to 39 and six. It just means sometime in the 39th week. A lot of people think it means like 39 and zero days, you know, but it's just sometime in the 39th week. So yours was still a 39 week induction um, because you hadn't crossed over into that 40, into that 40 weeks yet. I'm so glad that you made the distinction though of recognizing as the pregnant person that you know your body and you're like, okay, this, how can this baby be at a zero station and then be all the way over my ribs? Like probably a big baby, probably a long baby, you know? Um, but I'll just pause right there. Zero station. You guys learn about all of this in birth story Academy, if you want to jump in, but it's compared to the ischial spines. And so a zero station is completely in line with the base of the ischial spines. Am I saying that correct, Alexis, the labor and delivery yes. nurse? <laughs> I was like the expert. Um, so, you know, when the baby's floating around in their sack high up, they could be a negative four station, negative three, negative two, negative one, zero. And then when we get those positive numbers are when we're kind of like moving the head beyond those ischial spines. So zero station is very low. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Were you starting to efface and dilate some also? Um, so I was one centimeter and 80 to 90% effaced. So I was not very dilated, but I was very thinned out with his pregnancy. Yes. The longest and hardest, most arduous parts of labor, in my opinion, watching this as a doula is watching my clients a face. Oh, yes. Especially for a first time. Now, um, like with second pregnancies and third, from what I've seen and talked to doctors about, there's there's definitely like uh, multiples, you know, second time or more moms, they will dilate and still keep that thicker cervix, which usually doesn't happen as much for uh, first time moms. So, and they tend to thin out faster. So, yeah. I will say like, let's say we have a first time person just like you going in for um, an induction at 39 and six, like very rarely will I see an 80 to 90 person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what everyone was so surprised how thinned out I was with his and I didn't do anything special. I didn't eat the dates or I did drink some red raspberry leaf tea. Um, and I was, I was trying to hand express some colostrum. So I will say I did that with, with him. I think just that last 38th week and 39th week. Mm -hmm. Which can cause some uterine activity. Which did nothing. It did nothing. Okay. I was like, sometimes <laughs> yeah. that nipple stimulation can cause them. But I no. think just the size of your baby at a low station, putting yes, constant helped. Yeah, just constant pressure on the cervix, like sends a signal, releases mm -hmm. prostaglandins, and the cervix starts to thin. Now, I don't know your story, Alexis, yeah. okay? <laughs> but when you guys are listening, if you get a vaginal exam, I like you to ask for SPED. Station of the baby, zero. Position of the baby, you know, head down or uh, L-O-A or L-O-T or R-O-A or R-O-P. Like you guys can Google it, right? It's all the different positions, ways in which the baby's head could be. And then we like to look at effacement, which you were 80 to 90% effaced. And then D, unsped, is dilation, one centimeter dilated. All of those numbers, 
go into a bishop score. They also look at how soft, you know, if you're 80 to 90 percent of face, you're just as thin and soft as you can get. But that tells me, Alexis, even though I don't know your story, that we're probably going to have a successful vaginal birth and it's going to be less than 12 hours. So both of those are correct. Okay. So you guys, we can't put any single person into a box, right? Like Alexis could have said like, oh, the baby was OP and I labored for a really long time. And, you know, but when you have a very high Bishop score going into an induction, it's probably going to go quickly and it's probably going to be a successful vaginal birth. So let's dig into it. So you checked in for your induction and yes. what? So, uh, oh, sorry. So when you mentioned the Bishop score too, so um, the doctors are required to fill that out for elective inductions to know how to induce. So he, my doctor had my paper and I was like, let me look at what you're circling on there. Cause I really did not want to get Cervidil to go in the night before. Cause that's what the hospital that I worked at at the time did. Okay. Um, and I saw how uncomfortable sometimes that that was for women and mostly just the monitoring and the lack of sleep. And I didn't want to go into labor exhausted and have to be on the monitors all night long. So I was like, let's circle that I'm a little more effaced here <laughs> that, you know, or let's circle that I'm a little more dilated, you know, to make my Bishop score a little bit better to um, justify that we were just doing Pitocin. Cause I really did not want that Cervidil. So okay. I went in for a Pitocin only induction. Pitocin only induction. Okay. So that's very interesting to me because I'm surprised that they skipped the cook catheter with you. So being so thin, but only one centimeter, like they could have done a balloon catheter. So the hospital I was at at the time, that was not very common. I think when I worked there, I only saw one being put in. Honestly, they either did Cervidil or they would do um, Pitocin. And occasionally they would do like the cook catheters after a failed Cervidil or like cervical, you know, softened and opened a little bit. So then they were able to do the cook catheter, but that was not a very um, popular method when I worked there. Huh, that's so interesting. Different parts yeah. of, so, and we didn't cover this Alexis. So you're in Lexington, Kentucky. Yes. Right yeah. now. Um, at the time I lived up in Finley, Ohio. Oh, in Finley, Ohio. Okay. So look at how different things can be. Cause we haven't even gotten to your fourth pregnancy story, which yes. just occurred. And in that one, like you were in Lexington giving birth. So we'll even be yes. able to see some of the differences there. But oh, yeah. in Finley, Ohio. So I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. I would say we use a ton of cook catheters. Yeah. But because of that, we have a lower, I would say, AROM rate, artificial rupture of the membranes. So they tend to really help the cervix thin a face, dilate open to three to six centimeters with a cook catheter, then start Pitocin. And we tend to see waters rupture on their own um, quite often. Did you guys have a higher AROM rate up in Ohio? I think, I think we did. I think it was very common practice for them to artificially rupture um, and then uh, to get the, the process kind of going. Kind of going. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So I know you wanted 
a specific nurse, which is so cool because most people are like, I know which doctor I want or I know which yes. midwife I want. So the fact that you were like, oh, I know which nurse I want. So did that happen? Was like the nurse that you wanted well, there? So I just looked at the schedule and I picked the best option for the for the day. For the day. Okay. Yes. I love it. Uh, insider information right there. And um, so what time was arrival? So it was uh, our shifts there were five to five. So it was a 6 a.m. induction. Okay. 6 a.m. induction after a good night's sleep. Did you get a good night's yes. sleep? Okay. I think I got like four to five hours that night. <laughs> it's so Better hard. Than <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're restless because we're anxious and we're excited, but then also we're still like uncomfortable and peeing. But if you had four yeah. to five hours, that's great. Now, as a labor and delivery nurse at the time, were you like, and you've seen it all, were you like, um, get me that epidural, like as soon as I'm in pain or were you like, I'm going to go all natural? Like, did you have a plan for pain the management? The plan was to go all natural, but okay. I did not do any courses or anything like that on okay. pain management. So I ended up with the epidural, but yeah, and I was very blessed to do to have a great epidural and a great experience with it. So, you know what, Alexis, I'm a doula and I do a lot of natural birth for a living and I still got an epidural at two <laughs> centimeters dilated. Um, I really want to, I want to simmer on that point right there where Alexis said, I didn't do anything to prepare. Okay. That's okay. Our body has innate divine wisdom right? I'm quite certain that there are many parts of this world where women are having unmedicated natural childbirths without any preparation at all, right? It's hard when there's like fentanyl sitting right next to you and nitrous oxide and, you know, all these things that can just like make it go away. The number one thing that I would say from my own experience, getting an epidural at two centimeters dilated and watching other people's is um, it just being a choice, right? Yes. Like, you can just keep choosing on every contraction to just keep going, or you can choose to get an epidural and take a long, good nap. Yes. <laughs> you know? So Alexis, we were very similar on our first babies of getting that epidural. And you use the word blessed. Yes. When an epidural goes well, it can um, be a wonderful gift that we have the benefit of having in the United States, right? Like not everyone has an epidural available to them. Um, for medical care, and we do. So you check in. They start Pitocin because that was your they plan. They started Pitocin at um, 7 a.m. Okay. And then, I mean, I was like, walk. my nurse was letting me walk the halls a little bit. I did, you know, it, they were just extended bathroom breaks Okay. Um, that I was <laughs> taking off the monitor. And I would kind of walk the hall a little bit. And um, at 7.30 or 9.30, my doctor came around. And I was still, I think I was like, almost two centimeters, but I was very posterior. I had a very posterior cervix when we started and I was more mid position. So that okay. was about the only thing that Pitocin did on its own um, was kind of move my cervix forward a little bit. And while he was checking me, I said, just go ahead and break my water. Like I'm here. We're having a baby. Just go ahead. And he said, all right, there's no turning back now. So yeah. we broke my water around 9am. Okay. I was going to say, I was like, Aram usually comes into the the story yeah. at some point, unless it breaks on its own. So by 9.30 a.m., you're on Pitocin, your water is ruptured. That baby is well applied to oh, your yeah. cervix. And there's no 
nowhere to go except at this point with a mid position cervix besides starting to dilate and have consistent timeable contractions. When did they start to feel uncomfortable? Oh, right after they broke my okay. water. And I never got above um, six milliunits of Pitocin. Wow. With, so yeah, they started at two, went two, four, six, and I had contractions two to three minutes apart. So we never went above six. Wow. Now in my hospital, they kind of cap it at 20 unless there's a very unique circumstance yeah. with like a internal uterine pressure catheter and a fetal scalpel electrode. Then I have seen them go like to 28 or 30, but mm-hmm. usually 20 is kind of the max. So six that's a very, very low. low. Yeah. I was yeah. like, that's very low. Meaning like your body was ready, you know? Well, yeah. Um, and, to, and to fast forward, six is the magical number of Pitocin with my last as well. So I think oh. my body just really hits six of Pitocin and it just knows what to do. And so. it knows what to do. And so then you were in what we would call an active labor pattern, two to three minutes apart, lasting 60 to 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. And you're feeling uncomfortable. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. That's when we start to have cervical change. <laughs> so yes. um, at what point were you like, hey, we're, can I have an epidural? <laughs> so I made it to, I think, three to three and a half centimeters okay. around, I want to say it was around um, noon. So about okay. two and a half hours, I think, after my water broke. Okay. Well, you made it further um, than me, Alexis. Yes. <laughs> so they checked me after they did the epidural and the policy there was like, everyone has to step out of the room. Um, so it, we, I sent my husband to go get lunch and I was like, go eat. I'm going to get this epidural. He came back. I was comfortable. He had eaten. Um, they put the catheter in and I was four. So, you know, before they had checked me, I was three. And then I was four centimeters after the epidural. And then I just asked for the peanut ball and mm-hmm. decided um, that I was just going to labor there for a little bit and see what happened. Now you have the advantage of knowing labor positions with an epidural because you are a labor and delivery nurse, but um, the nurse that you had chosen, did she kind of na- help you navigate those position changes too, or were you running the show? So I, we really only just did like just sitting up high and then each side with the peanut ball. Um, we didn't really do any different positions other than that. Um, to be honest, I didn't really need them. I dilated rather quickly. So, (laughs) so, so when I really, I didn't want to bother, I was like, uh, you know, I'll let you know, you know, I'll let you know if I need you. But I, I knew the nurse was kind of just relaxed and was going to be kind of hands off. So good. So once you got the epidural and you were fully relaxed, AKA your pelvic floor was fully relaxed and released. How long was it until you started to feel like rectal pressure? So I never, so I, I did get a lot of pain on one side, which we called like a hot spot at that, you know, with your epidural, I had like a hot spot and the nurse anesthetist came back in and he was like, check her. And my nurse was like, you just placed this an hour ago. I'm not checking her. If she Cause she's in pain. So you're going to, you're going to make her comfortable whether she's 10 centimeters or she's still four. So, um, she's like, she needs to be comfortable. So he dosed, dosed me up with the epidural a little, little bit. And then my blood pressure did drop, um, when they dosed me a little higher with that. So I did have to get the ephedrine, um, to bring my blood pressure back up. 
So then I wasn't checked again. So like I said, shift change was five to five. So I um, told my nurse, I was like, why don't we check me around like 4.30? And um, because, you know, we'll see what I'm doing before shift change. And at 4.30, I was complete. Wow. And it's so it's yeah. possible that you had been complete long before For that. Yeah. But you weren't you kind of had an, a heavy epidural at that point. I did. Okay. I had a very heavy epidural. You know what? The feed- I, I continued to have a heavy epidural the entire time. So. <laughs> so Alexis, with that heavy epidural, it makes total sense to me that you didn't feel that rectal pressure then. And um, the fetal ejection reflex is real. So if Leo was wanting to be born, you would have started pushing. So you were just laboring down probably. Yes. Know? So because... I did not want a shift change baby. I didn't want to do that to my coworkers. I said, okay, I'll just labor down then until um, after shift change and then we'll start pushing um, since it was about 4.30. So around, I think uh, about 5.15 after shift change occurred um, is when, it's between 5.15 and 5.30 is when I started pushing with him. Okay. So it was all coached pushing because you didn't ever feel that, that rectal pressure. Yeah. I still, so I guess I, well, I guess it's a little bit of a lie because I had all the nurses cracking up um, because I kept asking who was sticking their finger in my butt while I was pushing. (laughs) So I did feel, I felt something, but I didn't, to me, it wasn't like the pressure that I was expecting to feel. And everyone feels that differently with an epidural, right? It's overwhelming without an epidural. And with an epidural, just depending on your varying levels, I mean, it can be... Listen, you guys have never seen my birth video with Max, my first. And the reason is, is because all I'm saying the whole time is... Oh my God, my butt, my butt, my butt. I was like, my butt. And that's like... I kept asking about my butt like I thought someone was sticking their finger there and I was I was like who has their finger in my butt my husband's like no one no one but all the nurses were cracking up and it's like a sensation I had never felt before so I just kept talking about it because it made me feel better and then I'm like and now I can never play my birth video for anyone including my children you know so how long did you push for so well Um, let's say this what station were you at when you started to push to be honest, I don't, I don't remember maybe yeah. plus one. I don't think he moved down too much, okay. um, but he was born at six seventeen. So he, I pushed for less than an hour. Wow. That is, this is a very fast story for a first time person giving birth, you know, getting in an induction, like this is incredible. Yes. Okay. Yes. I was not, expe- I was expecting it to be, you know, a day long induction and, Um, So I had prepared my husband and my family for the long haul. I was like, don't check in on us. I don't want to be bothered. Um, This could take a while. And then I sent, we sent our family pictures and they're like, what happened? I know. And at 617, I would be like, and now someone can bring me sushi for dinner. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I think I got pizza, but (laughs) yes. But I mean, like I was like time for dinner and a good night's sleep. I mean, what a beautiful birth story. How much did he weigh? He was nine pounds, four ounces, girl, and 20, 22 inches long. So that was why he was still up in my ribs when he was at zero station. That's a big baby for term. Yes. Did they have to do blood sugars? Um, With him, they did 12 hours of 12 blood hours. sugars. Okay. And um, because he was big, I did get um, a shot of methogen 
okay. in addition to Pitocin after him. It was just right after the placenta came out. Um, I had a little bit heavier bleeding. My doctor said it was just a big baby, big placenta. That was probably probably the reason why. So Yeah, and that makes sense. Methergen is a medication that causes the uterus to clamp down. Yeah. Okay. It's one of one of the medications that they'll use in the event of hemorrhage or heavier bleeding. So yeah. um, they don't give it if you have high blood pressure, if you have preeclampsia, so it does raise your, your blood pressure. Okay. And then there's one of them that you can't give if you have asthma, because you mentioned uh, that when we were talking earlier before the show started, you mentioned you had at, like pregnancy-induced asthma. So, so with I've, my third, yeah, I've developed some weird breathing issues. Um, it's either like an asthma or an allergy type thing that was causing some type of bronchoconstriction. Okay. Um, but I believe it's um, hemabate that they don't give with asthma. Okay. But like I said, it's been a while since I've worked labor and delivery, so don't quote me on that nope. one. <laughs> I'm going to quote you on it because I know exactly that that is actually what it is. Yeah. So if you have asthma... Um, you need to make sure that your provider knows all of your history, but they wouldn't use hemabate if you have any bronchoconstrictions. But methergen, pitocin, TXA, these are all medications that are commonly used cytotec rectally. Yeah. Those are medications that are used um, routinely to reduce bleeding after the placenta has delivered. So, um, Seems pretty routine. Did you have any yeah. complications post-birth? Um, no, I had bilateral labial tearing with okay. him, um, which was pretty uncomfortable because it's all internal stitching. Um, ah. So that recovery and even even kind of into both pregnancies, when I have like hormonal fluctuations, I can kind of feel the scarring, um, like feel that still. Yeah. Um, it's not super painful and it's just kind of on like the first day of my cycle when it comes like I, the change in hormones kind you can feel I can just tell where I where I tore but um, no lingering complications with how big he was or anything like that. Gotcha. Well, I know that you're a nurse practitioner, but I do have some clients that have had some similar experiences and they end it now that you're not pregnant. I mean, I know you are breastfeeding, but at some point they ended up using um, internal estrogen cream. Yeah, that's what my current OB um, has suggested for when I'm done nursing and being pregnant. She's like, well, when when the time comes that you're not pregnant or nursing will, we can give you some um, estrogen cream to help with that. So yeah, good. I wanted to make sure I mentioned that for people listening that are yes. like, wait, yeah, cause I is... honestly, I didn't even know that that was, that that could be done. I was like, what is going on? Hopefully there's something they can do. I didn't know if I was gonna have to do that or, you know, addition pelvic floor therapy, which I'm sure can still be an option, but yeah, you have to find a pelvic floor therapist that's comfortable with internal Inter pelvic work and mm -hmm. that will do scar mobilization therapy. So yeah, uh, for you, Alexis, for anyone else that's listening, make sure you ask those types of questions. Not all pelvic floor therapists do internal pelvic floor yes. therapy. So that's super important. Did you do anything with your placenta? I did not. Um, they saved, so the hospital saves it for a week, if you or the baby were to develop a fever, then it would get sent to pathology. Um, and then after that, they just discard of it. So okay. I, to me, that was important. If one of us were to be sick, I wanted the placenta to be available to be tested. Um, working in healthcare, that's just, 
you know, it, that was important to me. So that's what I did with all, all three births. I um, just had them keep it for the, the week and then discard of it after word. Again, I'm just so, um, like everything's just done so differently, right? So yeah. there's one hospital here that in my area that will hold for 24 hours in case of a fever. But most every single placenta just goes straight to pathology. They yeah. just send it to pathology. They will give you a bill for pathology. And then I would say we do a lot of placenta encapsulation and placenta donation. So in yeah. North Carolina, they partner with Duke and Chapel Hill and some just like the big universities and yeah. they're doing research, but they also are making skin grafts for burn victims, which is really that's, cool. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. So donation's also an option. That's why I, t- I like to ask at the end of your birth stories because, you know, now you're breastfeeding Gunner right now as we're chatting. So did you yes. go on a breastfeeding journey with Leo? Um, I did. He nursed all three of my boys are tongue tied, which can be hereditary too. So Leo was tongue tied, um, got his clipped after the hospital. Um, and then he, cause he had a little bit of issue gaining weight, um, getting back up to birth weight. So once he got that taken care of breastfeeding was fairly, fairly easy for us. And he nursed until he was 22 months old. So until I found out I was pregnant, with Bowen is when Leo weaned himself. (laughs) All right. Well, let me ask you about that. So I'm assuming if you were still breastfeeding, how were you trying to get pregnant or like, cause ovulation can be a little bit tricky sometimes when you're breastfeeding. So what did that look like? So we were, we were trying, um, we tried for about 10 months. Um, I did not want to go to the doctor for help because I figured they would tell me that I needed to quit nursing to, you know, be fully diagnosed if there was any infertility issues or for additional testing. Um, I was doing the ovulation strips, though. I was ovulating. I was doing basal body temperature and um, ovulation strips, and I was ovulating. I just wasn't getting pregnant and at the 10th month, we decided, because I was in school to become a nurse practitioner at the time, okay. I said, this would not be an ideal month to get pregnant. We should not try this month. And somehow, and I did get pregnant that month. So <laughs> Look, sounds like you ovulated a little bit earlier, a little bit yes. late. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I love it. Good for you though, Alexis. Do you know how hard it is? You guys, we just want to encourage you like, you have a job, you have a baby, like then you go back to grad school to become a nurse practitioner. I mean, like, bravo. This is a very difficult time in our lives to be for us as mothers to be fully human and yes. to to mother our children, too. So and I'm sure the stress of grad school wasn't helping the issue of not getting pregnant either or the stress of trying because, you know, honestly, that people put a lot of I was kind of expecting it to be like the first time where, you know, oh, we try one time and I get pregnant again. So um, I think, you know, just the journey in itself was probably not not helping the situation either. I'm assuming, though, at some point, like, let's say you didn't get pregnant at that month, like you were still connected to breastfeeding. Right. So for those people listening, like you know, that is always at some point you have to balance. If you continue to not get pregnant, you can balance letting go of breastfeeding. 
and seeing if there is an underlying fertility issue. Yeah, I my whole my plan all along was to wean at two. I have always yeah. said that's the longest I will nurse my my kids is two. Um, just personally, that's the limit I set. I get really touched out after even a year, and they don't even nurse, you know that frequently after that. Um, but I'd continue to do it for the benefits. So I had decided that if he was still, that if we still hadn't gotten pregnant, I was going to wean him at two. And then I would go back to my doctor. Yeah. Some people even tandem nurse, like some people are able to go through a pregnancy, nursing, get pregnant again, deliver, and then nurse both babies. So yeah. Um, now when you got pregnant, did um, your milk kind of just dry up right away? I think so because he tried to nurse and then he just looked at me and hopped down off the chair and said, nope, and walked away. So I think it um, quickly either changed over to colostrum or there just wasn't much there. Okay. Our bodies are Something he so... didn't like about it. Yeah. <laughs> our bodies are so smart and our babies are so smart, right? He's yes. like, nope, there's something in the refrigerator that's better for me. Yeah. You know, today. So tell me how your pregnancy went with number two with Bowen. Um, so it went pretty well. I was much sicker. I was very sick. Um, I lost about 10 pounds in the first trimester. And um, other than that, it went smoothly after the second trimester until I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes and COVID hit at the same time. So and he's my he's my COVID baby. So did you have COVID? No, no. I just meant COVID um, hit in the world is he was born in uh, June of 2020. June of so. 2020. Okay. So I would say all of your pregnancy was during COVID, but maybe we, the world just didn't know. We just didn't know Yes, the world didn't know it yet. Very interesting that you did not have gestational diabetes on one and you did have gestational diabetes on two. Do you have any insight for the listeners from your um your practice as a labor and delivery nurse or a nurse practitioner as to why someone may develop gestational diabetes with one pregnancy and not with another? So I know you're more, after you get it the first time, you are more likely to have it in subsequent pregnancies. Um, the thought was maybe I developed it later with my first pregnancy, and that could be a reason he was big, um, was that maybe I did have it undiagnosed Um and that's why he ended up being a large baby and at 39 and six. Um, but honestly, I think it was just, you know, it's how your placenta is. And maybe just that time around my placenta, just, I always say my placenta didn't like me is how I worded it because <laughs> I hated having to poke myself four times a day, yeah. but thankfully I was just diet and exercise controlled. So if I hopped on my treadmill and walked, my sugars were perfect. So it's like we should all do that all the time. Yeah. I walked <laughs> three to four miles a day for the second half of my pregnancy. So, wow. Good for you, Alexis. Yeah. Um, it's not easy to do. So, it did, was not. Did anything change for you with that diagnosis? Like, were you planning to get induced in the 39th week again? Because that's what you did with your first. And that was a great experience. Um, or was it like, we should induce you at 39 weeks because of gestational diabetes? What did that conversation um, look like? So with how big Leo was and um, being gestational diabetic, we, I had discussed with my provider that we would get induced at 39 weeks. 
um, in the 39th week. Just And my plan was to get an epidural and then have them break my water and go along with an induction since my first went so smoothly. Um, however, they did not have any um, openings for an induction when I was 39 weeks exactly. So I was scheduled for 39 and 1. And my wild middle child decided to come on his own at 39 weeks exactly. So Wow. So you went into spontaneous labor a day yes, before your scheduled induction. Okay. Yes. Y'all, listen, I'm a doula. My clients have plans. Okay. We have a we even if they have a scheduled C section, we have plans for that spontaneous labor. Did you know what, did you have a plan? Were you like, okay, if my water breaks, if my contractions start, or were you in denial? Like, nope, I'm going to make it to 39.1. So um, I had been getting checked at my visits and at my 38 week visit, I was three to four centimeters and 70% effaced. And with how quickly I went from four to complete the last time, the doctors in uh, the midwife at that office had told me, if you have any contractions for more than an hour, you go to the hospital. They didn't They didn't say, wait the five minutes. I was not allowed to do that. I was to head straight in. No, 100% <laughs> because when you're three to four centimeters dilated and 70% effaced and you're a multip and you have a history of a very fast labor, the chances of you having a labor longer than four hours are small. So I don't still, I don't know your story, but I'm going to guess you had to labor less than four hours, but I don't know. So what did so, you do when you started having contractions? So I woke up that morning, walked on the treadmill and then I had went to the restroom and I had bloody show. Okay. And um, I also had decreased fetal movement that morning. So I text my doctor's office, text my doctor personally and let him know. And he said, call the office. We'll see you and we'll do um, a non-stress test and we'll check your cervix because I was having irregular contractions. They felt like Braxton Hicks to me is what I told him. I said, they're coming anywhere between eight to 15 minutes apart and they do not hurt at all. Okay. Um, so I went about my morning. I called the office. I told my husband to come home around noon. I said, we'll eat lunch and we'll go to the doctor's office at two 15 is when they scheduled my appointment. Okay. And my husband, I was having these irregular contractions. Didn't hurt. He started driving home for work. And I had three contractions that were about eight minutes apart that were painful. And I then after those three, I had three that were five minutes apart. And I looked at him. He pulled in the driveway. I said, we're going to the hospital now. He said, I thought we were going to the doctor's office. I said, nope, we're going to the hospital. Good and for you. on the drive, they started two to three minutes apart. And I had an hour drive to the hospital. <gasps> no, you didn't. Yes. Where, where in the so, middle of nowhere, Ohio is this? So we moved to Lima, Ohio, but I was still de um, delivering in Finley, Ohio. So okay. it was just straight up um, Interstate 75, but there was, there's construction along the way. So I was just praying there was no road work that day. And it's the middle of the afternoon. So rush hour is probably yes. like coming into play. Oh my God. So you had to drive an hour. And at this point, you're two to three minutes apart. The entire drive, two to three minutes apart. Wow. Um, I text my doctor, said, skipping the appointment, heading to the hospital. <laughs> and he said, okay, they'll call me when you get there. Okay. And um, so I had freaking worked out? There. I wasn't freaking out. My husband kept asking me how I was doing. And I said, stop talking, just drive. Because I like to joke that my husband drives like a grandpa. 
and does not drive quickly <laughs> for anything. And I was like, if he drives like he normally does, we're going to have a baby on the side of the interstate right now. So we made it there. I walked in, walked up to the labor and delivery. Everyone's talking to me because in the meantime, I had stopped working um, to focus more on my schoolwork. Okay. So I had stopped working up in labor and delivery. So everyone wanted to talk and chat and see how I was doing. And I was like, can we just get me in a room? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, here, go pee in the cup, you know, put the gown on, we'll be back. And I was like, okay. And after no one came back after like 15 minutes. Um, so I'll say we, we got to the hospital. I looked, it was 118. I had written it down somewhere. So we got there at uh, 118. And then after I was finally registered and um, the nurse came back and they checked me around 145 and I was seven centimeters. And were you like, where's my epidural? Um, they said, well, how are you doing? I said, it's not too bad because my water hadn't broken. Okay. So I said, I'm fine for now if you want to draw my blood and get my IV in. <laughs> um, <laughs> so at 2, I believe at like 2.15, I told him there was more pressure. I was like, oh, there's there's some pressure. And I was 8 centimeters, 8 to 9 um, and she was calling my, my doctor, like, where are you? You know, the nurse was calling her from her personal phone too, yeah. from my room. Like, um, so she doesn't have an epidural. You need to get here. He's like, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. So I think he showed up around two 30 and I had a liposervix. So I labored with that liposervix for almost 30 minutes. And finally I looked at my doctor. I said, we've pushed past this with other people. We're pushing past it. <laughs> Good for you. So a lip is where all of the cervix is dissolved, except for a small portion of it, you guys. So if you're th looking at a clock, think 12 to 3, there's a little bit of cervix. But 3 to 12, there's no cervix at all. And so when Alexis says push past, she literally means either she pushes past it or the OB or midwife holds the cervix back while she pushes. Which which is what he did. I um I did the standard, you know, I'm gonna hold my breath, push push to ten three times, and he reduced the cervical lip while I was pushing, which I do not recommend without an epidural. It is not not comfortable at all. Um, so I think I started pushing just a little bit before three o'clock, and Bowen was born at three eleven. What? <laughs> Like they reduced the lip and had a baby within 11 minutes. Yes. <laughs> Goodness. And so, and really your first so my, contraction. My first contraction was probably um, 12, 15. The one that I'd really say hurt was probably 12, 15-ish. Yeah. Wow. See how good I am at my job? I mm. said less than four hours. Yes. Yep. <laughs> it's so crazy. I mean, there are patterns like you guys. Every single person is so different, but there are patterns that we see that could indicate that you have a higher likelihood of having a story like Alexis's. If you're if your cervical exam at 38 weeks is like that, you've already given birth, that kind of thing. Okay. So this was at 39 and zero. So six days of yes. less growing than Leo. So how much did Bo, Bowen weigh? He was 811. Okay. So right on track with what he would have been because Leo was 94, yeah, right? So, mm -hmm. 
Okay, so you know about what size babies you make. <laughs> that tells me that you probably did have gestational diabetes too with the first one. Do you think yeah. you did? Late onset? Um, honestly, I don't think I did. I because okay. I could I was having issues where my sugar would like drop. Okay. Um, like I would feel lightheaded, shaky until I would eat. So I think I had kind of the opposite issue. Okay. Um but it wasn't all the time, so I don't know. I only asked based because my babies were 10, 6, and then when I induced early, 9 pounds, I never tested positive for gestational diabetes. Yeah, and I'll tell you more on this, the third one. Like, we did, I even willingly took the three-hour gestational diabetes test. Yeah. And I passed. Wow. Yeah. And he came out. Okay, we'll, we'll get to it. Okay, so we before we get to Gunner's story, okay, well, first of all, tell me about your tearing. Did you have that those labia Did, tears? Or um, I had a slight, he said I needed one stitch. Okay. Um, and so he started getting the needle. I said, wait, 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 where's the lidocaine? He said, well, either I poke you with the stitch or I poke you with the lidocaine. And I was like, oh, well, true. So true. Um, and it, I mean, honestly, it didn't hurt. I think like feeling the ring of fire and everything like with him, my pain tolerance was just, you know, much higher. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and my water did not break until I was pushing. So I handed my phone off to people um, to take pictures of his birth because uh, I was hoping he would be born in the sack. Oh. And unfortunately, as his head came out, he ruptured his his sack. So. You know what, Alexis? I always said that I would retire as soon as I saw a baby be born in call. Yeah. And then last year it happened. And then I did it. And then I did it. You're like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to retire. But if I could tell you how many sacks I see bulge out with all the fluid and then the head starts to come and I'm like, here we are, here we are. And then it just pops and I'm like, dang. So it is very rare and such a a wonderful gift to see a baby be born and call, but it usually pops right somewhere. If it hasn't popped in your labor, it usually pops when you're pushing. So, yeah. And I think that's the only reason I didn't, you know, deliver on the side of the interstate was because my water was intact. I think if my water would have broken while we were traveling, I would have dilated to 10 and had a baby. Yeah. Okay. So somewhere in between Leo and Bowen, and giving birth to Gunner, you you move. Yes, we moved um, November of 2020. So okay. uh, when Bowen was six months old. Okay, November of 2020. Job. Okay, I'm just trying to paint a picture for the audience of like, okay, now we have a history of precipitous delivery at 39 and zero. So when you're, I'm gonna, and I'm going to jump back to your miscarriage in a minute. But like when we go through Gunner's birth, are you like, okay, I'm going to have a precipitous delivery and like, where do we live? Like, we should do this at home. Like, where was your head? I mean. Yeah. So I knew with that, um, thankfully in Lexington, there's hospitals just about everywhere. We do live just slightly outside of Lexington, but I can get to my hospital that I delivered at in about 20 minutes with no traffic. Okay, perfect. Um, (laughs) And I'm on a main road, like within five minutes of leaving my house. So, you know. Okay. Also like thinking like an ambulance could get to you if you need it. Okay. Yeah. And I will say, so our family didn't live, our family is in Cincinnati, Ohio. So we didn't have family around it either 
for either uh, birth. My parents actually came up when my mom heard how dilated I was at 39 weeks. And because COVID was, you know, a bigger thing, then she came up and worked from our house and stayed at our house. So that way, if I went into labor, they would be there because they knew I had the hour drive to the hospital as well. Mm -hmm. So if we would have had to wait for a sitter for Leo, then I definitely wouldn't have made it or my husband would have been in the car with Leo and he would have missed the birth as well. Wow. All the things that align, right? Yes. yes. So, and this just goes to show like sometimes we make birth seem like it's so complicated and sometimes it's just as easy as that. You yeah. Know? Um, and sometimes it is really, really complicated, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. also, um, I want to finish Gunner's birth story. And then I'm going to ask you a few questions about your miscarriage at the end of the show. And that way, okay. if anyone is triggered, they can jump off if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, so with Gunner, did you test positive for gestational diabetes? Uh, no, I did not. So I took the early, I had to do the early test. I did it around 12 or 13 weeks and I passed by nine points. Okay. So then at 28 weeks, I told my doctor, look, I just barely passed last time. I'm going to willingly take the three hour test. And she was shocked because no one's apparently had someone willingly take that test. Mm, no. And, uh, <laughs> So I willingly took it and I passed it with flying colors. Okay. And so after that, then, did they want you to test at home through 34 weeks or anything like that? Just to make sure you didn't have late onset? Nope. Uh, They were just going to keep monitoring my urine and, you know, making sure there was no sugar in my urine or anything. Okay. And I can usually, I'm kind of a, a strange one where, where when I get high blood pressure or high blood sugar, I get the hypoglycemic feeling. So I get like sweaty. So anytime I did have high blood sugar with Bowen, like if I accidentally ate something with more carbs than I realized, um, I would get like shaky and sweaty and it was high blood sugar, not low. So I made sure to like pay attention to that. And I never had any of that with Gunner either. Okay. So, so it sounds, it actually sounds like it truly was a one off with Bowen. Yeah. And then they, they did like growth, um, with him because I measured, I was measuring small with him actually. Um, my stuff, my fundal measurements were about two weeks, two weeks behind and I never measured behind. And so just, just to laugh later on, um, at 36 weeks, they measured him at six pounds, nine ounces. So he was going to be a decent size, you know, Okay. Yeah. either way, but that's what they measured him at, at 36 weeks. Okay, so what was the plan, Alexis? So um, my husband and my two older boys were actually going to be in my brother-in-law's wedding um, on in early May. So I was going to only be 10 days after, it was 10 days after my due date. So I decided for childcare reasons, because like I said, we don't have family down here in Lexington, and to be on top and be able to like function at this wedding, um, with three kids because my husband was the best man. So I was going to be doing all of the things <laughs> with all of the kids. Only a third like time mom could even wrap yeah. their brain around that. You know what I mean? Yes. Like first baby, oh, yeah. you'd be like, no, we can't come to the wedding. Sorry. Second, you'd be like, maybe third. You're like, oh yeah, whatever. It's a disaster yeah. anyway. We'll, we'll survive it. Yeah. We picked our other two up 
from school on the way home from the hospital with the third baby. And I was like, that's only a third time mom thing. Only like, a third time mom. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the plan was get induced. An elective, an elective induction at 39 weeks. Okay. You're still sticking with 39. I was wondering if you were going to like say 38 and four or something. Oh, I tried. Okay. I tried asking my doctor. I was like, anything we can do. She's like, you got to give me a medical reason. And I was like, well, I don't have one. So yeah, (laughs) we'll just go right at that 39th week. So what, what day were they able to fit you in, in that 39th week? Um, so he was, oh, just 39 and zero. 39 and zero. Okay. You made it on a Friday, a Monday, and then this one was a Wednesday. So I've had, I'm hitting all the, all the days of the week to be induced. Oh my gosh. Okay. So 39 and zero. Now you are one, you've told us in our previous stories to get vaginal exams in advance. So what were those exams telling you about gunners? Well, about your cervix. I, I had a lot of prodromal labor with him and, um, I was not dilated as much with him. I was two in like 50 um, from 36 weeks on. And I was GBS positive. Okay. Um, So with a history of my precipitous delivery too, I wanted to be sure I could get two doses of antibiotics. So that was another added factor to the reason to be induced. Okay. Sure. And I'm over here like, ha ha, we'll see if you get two doses in, <laughs> you know, <laughs> hope for one. Yeah. So when you showed up for your induction, is that where we started at two and 50? I think I was three and 50. Okay. Three and two 50. to three. Okay. Two, yeah, two to three and 50 still. Well, that's a um, very different starting point. Third is the wild card. So that's a very different starting yes. point for you. And I was not active like I was with Bowen because like I said, with Bowen, I had to exercise to keep my sugar down. And this time around, um, I had a job where I was driving a lot and I was just exhausted by the end of the day and, you know, chasing two other kids. I was not exercising. So, and I developed like bronchospasms, which I do think either I have um, developed asthma or I've developed an allergy to um, cigarette smoke. I go into a lot of homes where for my job. And, you know, people smoke in their own homes. They can if they want to. But I would be really irritated and very short of breath um, after leaving some of these homes, this pregnancy. Okay. So. Well, I will also tell you a couple of things. So North Carolina is known to be one of the worst states in the country for seasonal allergies. And something is different, too, with those that have gotten covid and then yeah. and then live in the south like we're seeing people pop up with bronchospasms asthma they call it reactive airway disease yeah you know like all different things just kind of struggling with this more with seasonal allergies and things like that than normal now louisville kentucky very different than whatever city you said in ohio as far as what's what blooms what trees there are it's a very green state so that all makes a lot of sense to me a lot of horse farms and hay and all kinds of things that i'm sure are not Not any good to be breathing into. No. And to do that in the middle of a pregnancy, it takes years for our body to adjust to a place like Kentucky, right? Yeah. Um, Did you have COVID at any point? I had COVID officially diagnosed one time, um, January of 22. Okay. 
2022, I think. Uh, and um, then I probably unofficially had it some more times, but um, was never was never tested. Yeah, that's how I feel. I always say I've had it three times, but like one I'm time gonna I go went with, to I probably had it two at least. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know, we're in healthcare, you know, we're around it all the time. Yeah. So, okay, so we get in, and I know that you were really kind of opposed to Cervidil because, you know, I love Cervidil. Actually, it goes in like a tampon. You can take it out. It stays for twelve hours, but it does kind of make the um, tissue inside the vagina, very, very, very sensitive. Um, yeah. but you were only 50% effaced. So were you still like, let's Aram Pitocin this, or were you like, let's Cook's catheter this? Like now you're in a different hospital system with yeah, a different so this bishop. hospital does more, um, catheter, you know, cook catheters or they, use, they actually didn't use Cervidil at this hospital. Okay. They used, um, they did Cytotec. Okay. And I just personally didn't, my doctors figured with my history, the doctor I had this time around, she figured with my history that thinning out really wasn't going to be much of an issue. Okay. Um, so we just went ahead for Pitocin. And actually the day before I was induced, we were at my son's t-ball game and I was contracting about every three to five minutes, um, but they never got any stronger. Okay. And they eventually, they would stop if I sat down, but start back up if I stood up. So um, and that kind of continued. I was contracting every 15 minutes when I showed up for my induction. So I actually had them hold off on starting the Pitocin at first because I was like, well, maybe she can just break my water and we'll just do it that way and not even need Pitocin. But my doctor still, she prefers to have at least a little bit of Pitocin on board before breaking water to make sure that the contraction pattern is good. That makes sense. See, every provider works differently. Yeah. Um, because you can always take Pitocin away. Yeah. And that's what she said. If you start contracting too much, we'll just stop it. So. Yeah. Okay. So what did you decide to do then? Start Pitocin? So, so we started with my first dose of penicillin. Okay. Oh, yes. That's <laughs> so that smart. Way I could... Yes. First and dose then, of antibiotics. Check. And then they started Pitocin. That was at 630. Um, okay. And then I held off on starting Pitocin. They started that at 8. And I only got up to Pitocin of uh, six milliunits yeah. by 9.30 again. Okay. And my doctor came by at 10.15 and I was three to four and 80. So I had thinned out quite a bit. Actually, I looked back. So I started at 360 and minus two. Okay. And I, I was taking notes in labor this time because I knew I had this scheduled. Okay. So um, at 10.15 when she broke my water, I was three to four, 80 and minus one. So. Okay. Wow. So that was a lot of progress for a very short period of time. In in two hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, then I got my second dose of penicillin right around 1030. So okay. they were able to get that second dose in. Which and I'm then, sure made you feel like, okay, I'm here. Yeah. I'm safe. I've got my two doses. And like now I can give birth. Yes. And then, um, so at 11.15, I started kind of doubting myself. And I had gone into this birth with not wanting an epidural. I said, I've done it before. I can do it again. Okay. I was something so different. curious. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, did you like that experience? And we're going to repeat. Okay. So you were thinking no epidural. Yes. Okay. Um, so at 11.15, I'm like, well, this is starting to suck. Um, I was 6.90 and minus one. Okay. And they told me, okay, they're getting ready to start a C-section at 12. So, you know, if you want it 
you need to get it now. I said, uh, I think I'll be okay. They said, well, we can bring the nitrous in. You can, you can try that if you want. I threw the nitrous mask eventually. It didn't work. I must be a person that it doesn't, that doesn't respond to it at all. There was absolutely no change in how I felt, how anything felt, or they just didn't have it plugged in right, honestly. Who knows? It, yeah. Yeah. Because usually we see you kind of like drift off yeah. to La La Land, you know? No, there was nothing. <laughs> so at 11.15, like I said, I was 690 minus one. At 12, I started saying, I, you know, I can't do this. And then I told myself, okay, I know when I say, when I'm saying I can't do this, I must be getting close. Um, at 12.15, I was 890 and zero. Yeah. With each contraction, I would feel more and more pressure after each one. So from 12.15 to, to when I delivered, I probably had someone's hand like constantly in my vagina checking me because I kept saying, there's more pressure. There's more pressure. You know, yeah. I was like, he's, he's going to come. And finally, my doctor, I was doing, I, so I was not vocal at all with my second. I handled the contractions. I was very quiet. They said they didn't even know I didn't have an epidural in there. Well, this time around, I was focusing on relaxing my shoulders down, being loose. And I, I was making those guttural noises and grunting and biting my husband's arm, apparently, because yeah. I was like, this really is terrible. At one point, the, I was on the fetal monitor. I was on a, a, court, a wireless one, and they lost his heart rate on the monitor. And I felt a thud. Like, I just felt something drop in my pelvis. Then, you know, they're telling me, okay, we got to, we got to roll you to check his heart rate because we can't find it with the portable monitor. And I don't know what it was about them moving that ultrasound monitor across my stomach, but it hurt. Like it felt terrible. And as they're trying to look, my body is doing the fetal ejection reflex and he is coming out and I'm yelling at them that he's coming. And they're like, but you're still, you still have a cervical lip. You're still eight. I said, I'm not eight and he's coming. Good <laughs> and for you. Someone, someone finally ran. My doctor had been sitting at the nurse's station because she happened to hear me at one point when she came up to check on me. And she's like, I'm just going to sit right here. <laughs> and um, so she didn't go far. And someone ran to grab her. And by the time she was in, he was crowning. And she said, I need gloves. And she didn't get gloves. She said, that's only the second time in her career. She's never gotten her gloves on. Wow. But his head, his head came out. I did not push one bit to get his head out. He, wow. the fetal ejection reflex did it all. And that was the, it was the weirdest feeling ever. I don't even remember the, um, like the ring of fire this time around though. Like, I can't say I had that feeling. I just remember me like grunting and him just coming out. <laughs> wow. Those grunts and those guttural moans really help the pelvic floor relax yeah. and release. Yeah. So when his head came out, my doctor looked and she was like, this baby's huge. We need to get him out. And um, so they're trying. I saw someone grab the stool and put it next to me because they were concerned it could be a shoulder dystocia. Okay. Um, and then someone pushed back on my side because I was kind of on my side and someone pushed back on my leg and I was like, oh, you just want me to push? Like, <laughs> I, I can push him out, you know? Yeah. I can push and we can get him out. So I just pushed and she kind of, my doctor kind of grabbed and he came out. So yeah. at uh, 12.46. 12.46, goodness. <laughs> so yeah, another very quick mm -hmm. labor. 
I mean, I'm going to tell you to have a home birth if you have another one, Alexa. (laughs) Oh my goodness, that is so fast. Now, you had mentioned before we started recording that one of them you remember kind of like reaching down. That was my first when I had the epidural. I reached down and I pulled him out. Um, And I had asked if I could do that this time around. But when the time came, there was no reaching down and pulling him out. Yeah, there there was just. (laughs) It's really funny. I'll have clients on their birth plan say like that they want to touch the head or feel the head when they're crowning. And then when they're crowning, I'm like, okay, give me your hand and I'll help you. And they're like, no, 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 no. You know, like, because you're just so focused and frozen, Mm -hmm. you know, on what you're doing. Okay. So now you have to tell us how much did he weigh? So at 39 weeks on the dot, he was nine pounds, 14 ounces. What? (laughs) That is so big. I mean, that is definitely test your blood, test some blood sugars at 39 and zero. I mean, that's an 11 pound baby at 41 weeks. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Wow. And did you have tearing? Nope. No tearing. Oh my gosh, you guys. That's because you didn't push and you had the fetal ejection reflex. So like he was stretching you like tremendously, even if you didn't feel it. Well, and I swear the nurse, I, it felt like she was trying to hold me back, like almost pushing him, holding him in there, pushing him back when she's like telling me I'm only eight. And I'm like, well, he's coming and my body is doing this. So yeah. Oh my gosh. Alexis, you're incredible. These stories are, I mean, I feel like I'm right there with you by your side, like as they're all going down. Um, really, really incredible. So you guys, if you need to jump off, um, because it would be too triggering to hear about a unique story with a miscarriage, then go ahead and jump off. Alexis and I are only going to stay on about two or three minutes and just share a little story about a medication that I hadn't heard of that was used before. Um, so Alexis, just to kind of go backwards in between Bowen and Gunner, there was another pregnancy that we had talked about and you had miscarried um, at the in the ninth week, you said, but the sack was about six weeks and three days. And you had told me that you had gone in for a DNC. And I wanted to share with the audience kind of what happened after your DNC when you got home so that if this happens to someone else, that they would know what's normal or not normal and kind of um, how you got help with how you were feeling with your headache and your bleeding. So could you just share a little bit about that coming home from the DNC? Yeah. So I had elected not to go under general anesthesia for the DNC. I, um, I had a spinal because I figured my epidural worked really well with my pregnancy um, that I had it with in my delivery. So I had the spinal, um, had the DNC. My bleeding was very, very minimal. And then the next day I noticed I had a headache. Um, my, my headache, you know, I had done a lot of crying, obviously having a miscarriage and having the DNC and everything. And it was done really late at night. I didn't get much sleep. Um, cause I kept getting pushed back for other surgeries that were going on during the day. Um, so when my headache wasn't getting better, um, I reached out and they said, Oh, it could be a spinal headache. Cause it was better when I would lay flat. Um, when I'd sit up or stand up, I would notice, I would notice it came back. So that space, kind of closes that they puncture that space kind of closes when you lay flat. And then when you're upright or sitting, it's open. Um, 
allowing the fluid to kind of leak out. So that's what can cause the headache. Um, so I had that and then I was having some really bad cramping. So they sent me back to the triage at a hospital. This was not the hospital I delivered at. Um, this was before I, before Gunner's birth. So I was at a different hospital. They sent me back to the triage area and they noticed I had a lot of clots that were retained, um, that my body wasn't passing. And then they said, um, they gave me a medication called Fioraset um, for the spinal headache to see if it would help. And if that did not help, then they were going to have to do a blood patch. Okay. And Fioraset is a medication you had described that has Tylenol, caffeine. And, and then a controlled substance, and a, controlled um, substance. a very, very minor controlled substance. It's okay. one of the least scheduled scheduled ones, but technically Fioraset still is considered a controlled substance. Okay. And it's typically um, prescribed for migraines. Yes. Yeah. But it worked really well. I just had never heard of this story. And so I wanted to share it with the birth story audience that number one, yes, a headache can be normal if it goes away with Tylenol, right? Yeah. From crying, from being sad, from being dehydrated, what, whatever that is. Okay. But that after you've had a spinal, a spinal headache, it's not normal and you should reach out and ask for help by getting a medication or like Alexa said, if that didn't work, they would go ahead and do a blood patch. Um, what did they do to get those blood clots out of you that were pulling inside of your uterus after the DNC? Um, so they gave me Cytotec and then a few days went by and I started passing pretty large clots. And then um, I think I was about a week after the initial DNC or eight, eight days, I believe, actually. And I started passing very large clots and bleeding um, pretty heavily. So I had my husband take me back in um, to the triage area. And just from leaving my house to getting to that triage area, I had saturated a pad. Blood was going down my legs. I was standing in the hospital lobby just covered in blood. Um, so I go back up, get up to the labor and delivery area while my husband's trying to park the car with the two kids sleeping in it. Um, and they lay like I get on the table and they pull a few clots that were just kind of like sitting in my vagina out. And then there was one that was like hanging out of my cervix, I guess, um, take that. And then my bleeding slows tremendously. Um, and that was a resident, I want to say who did that because it was a teaching hospital, um, so then the attending came in, my bleeding had slowed and just with my history, cause I, like I said, I had to get methogen after my first, I, the, the doctor was kind of very rude, honestly. And she was like, well, you're not, you're not hemorrhaging. We've weighed the pads, you know, they're not over X amount of milliliters that they were looking for, um, However, it was still still heavy. I had like 75 mLs just in a 20 minute car ride, That's and not lot. counting all, not counting all the clots that they threw into the trash can while they were like after I got up there, and my clothes that had blood on them. So I was like, it's still a lot. Like, and I'm eight days post DNC. This is not normal. So I pushed. Her. She said, "Well, what do you want me to do?" I said, "Well, I'd like some methogen, thank you." And <laughs> I think the look on her face was just like. You know, she was shocked that I even probably one knew what methogen was. I didn't tell her that I worked in healthcare, that I had experience as a labor and delivery nurse, but I was like, I'd like methogen Good to stop this because I don't want to be back here again. Yeah. And did the methogen work? 
It did. And then I had some very strange side effect where my whole body ached on the last day of Methergen. So they gave me, I want to say four days worth of Methergen. And on that fourth day, it was like I had insane cramps or like, I just could barely even like make a fist, my whole body just, and it was like that, my legs, my hands. Mm. And I looked it up and apparently that can happen um, with Methergen. It says, you know, under not common side effects, uh, muscle spasms, but it eventually wore off and I was fine and my bleeding stopped. So. Yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense to me because part of the mechanism of action is getting the uterine muscle to cramp and contract. Yeah, but it was like my entire body body was cramping and contracting. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but somehow that makes sense to me, you know, but yeah, it does. Nonetheless, not fun. So yeah, well, Alexis, thank you so much for being here. We had a chance to kind of email back and forth you guys and both of us are heading off to carpool now to pick up our bigs. And um, it's just been really fun to spend the afternoon with you and to hear these birth stories and the fact that like, you know, Gunnar was here with us for a little bit and you got to nurse and you're five weeks postpartum. I mean, really thank you for giving me your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I listened to every single podcast while I was pregnant with Gunnar and (laughs) yours, other podcasts. I could not get enough of any birth story. So. Oh, it's so wonderful. And today the audience got three. So that's really special. I appreciate you reaching out and scheduling and um, just thank you. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want no matter what that looks like.